Well, thank you for joining me. If you would go ahead and open your Bible to the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapter 4 and looking at verses 7 through 19, a very familiar story to you. Uh, It is titled as The Woman at the Well or the Samaritan Woman in Jesus. And uh, we're going to be focusing on worship over the next four weeks. Now, with the changes that we are wanting to institute into our worship gathering on Sunday mornings, I thought it would be prudent of us to teach through a series on worship, of what worship is and what worship is not. Also, what should be our goal in the Sunday morning gathering time? And these are all things which we are going to talk about through the next four weeks. Now, Ralph Waldo Emerson, which probably some of you know who that is, and he wrote and was quoted as saying, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. So even though Emerson was not a Christian by any means, he had an insight into human nature and human understanding. And I think one thing we could say is what's woven into our DNA, or we could even term it as a hardwiring into our being, is that we are worshipers. We all worship. All seven plus billion people in this world are worshipers, and they're worshiping something. Now, it's probably not the same God by any means, but we all worship. It is likely that you don't wake up every morning thinking, well, what am I going to worship today? This probably rarely crosses your mind, and maybe it does cross your mind, and that's awesome if that actually does. But if you wake up in the morning and you have that thought, I think that's a blessing. But most of the times when we wake up, that's not the first thought that we have in our mind. Usually it's like, well, I just need to get some coffee, or uh, I can't wait till these, these kids go to school, or, or some other thought other than, what am I going to worship today? Our practice every single day is to worship something, though, isn't it? We will worship something today, right now. We are worshiping something. And when you woke up this morning, did you consider worship? Did you consider worshiping God this morning? And maybe because it's Sunday or the day in which you're watching this, you were intent on watching this video, you had that thought in your mind. So let me ask a couple other questions that I think uh, are helpful for us. A couple other questions are, well, why do you come here? Why do you come to First Baptist? And then what do you do whenever you come here? These are two really relevant questions, which maybe a neighbor of yours or somebody that's not familiar with Christianity could possibly ask you. Why do you go to that church? Why do you go with those people over there? Why not over here? And then they might even wonder, like, what do you do when you go there? What's the purpose of going there? Uh, What is really happening in that place? And how would you answer those questions to that person if they were to ask you these kinds of questions? How would you explain worship? How would you explain what you are doing on a Sunday morning to somebody that has no clue about Christianity? Well, I think we obviously need to find a definition of worship. What is worship? And if I could give you kind of a simple definition of what worship is, it's praising the worth of a superior being. Uh, 
praising the worth of a superior being. The word worship in which we, we have today, it is derived from an old English word that meant uh, worthiness, uh, which is then, it was then transitioned into this idea of worth-ship, and then it was shortened for us today to worship. So when we worship something, we are assigning value to that object. We're giving a, a value, a price tag to that object that we are worshiping. We are elevating that object to a place of superiority over us, and so it becomes a god to us because it's over us. It rules over us. We've given value to that, more value than probably possibly ourselves. So if this is simply what worship is, praising the worth of a superior being, then the question becomes, what are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? Because in order to have right worship, we must have the right God to worship. And I think another way that we could say this is, well, wrong worship is when we worship the wrong God. And probably you're thinking, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course, wrong worship is when we have the wrong God. Well, let me ask you, are you worshiping the wrong God? Of course, no one's going to admit that or say, yeah, I, I worship the wrong God. No, in, in every culture, in every place, people are worshiping a, a God of some sort. But rarely would anybody ever say that they're worshiping the wrong God. More than likely, they would argue for the fact that they're, they're worshiping the right God. And this is the right way to worship that God. We have people all over the world that are worshiping a God and they're doing it with all kinds of sincerity, all kinds of passion for that God because they believe it to be the right God. And this is the problem that we have even here in this city, even maybe even in this congregation, that we have people believing with all sincerity that they're worshiping the right God when they are not. Let's look at John chapter 4 in verses 7 through 19, and see an example of worshiping the wrong God. Worshiping the wrong God is so much more subtle than really what we'd like to think. And this is what we see here from this text that we will look at this morning, the, the subtleness of worshiping the wrong God. So look with me in John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What an interesting story that we have here. Again, Jesus, he, he was intentionally going through Samaria, and it seems to be from the story that this is the reason why, that he had an encounter in mind that he was going to have at this well. He sent his disciples on into the town, and he has this conversation with this woman and it's amazing how Jesus can take something that is in the physical world and quickly turn it to a spiritual application. And this is what happens here with this woman. She came to draw water from this well, but Jesus tells her that she's missing something else. There's a different kind of water which she should really desire and really want. And what this woman was doing, she was drinking from the wrong well. And spiritually speaking, this is what Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 tells us. What was happening with the people of Israel. And this is what was happening with this Samaritan woman. And what might possibly be happening with you. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This woman, she was drinking from a broken well. Her life, her life, she had been drinking this water that was not filling. And Jesus uses this moment where she came to draw out physical water to point to a spiritual water that she was lacking. She was drinking from broken wells or broken cisterns, just like the people of Israel had done back with Jeremiah. And so what is this well that this woman was drinking from? Well, I think there's probably three different kinds of wells in which she was drinking out of here. The first well I would label as the well of circumstances. The, the well of circumstances has this kind of water in it of, well, I'm, I'm poor, and if I only had money, that would fix everything. If I could change the way that I look, then I would be better. If I only had better friends, I wouldn't have all this drama going on in my life. You know, if I had only married somebody that appreciates me and loves me, then I would have a better marriage. It is this thinking of if only, of the well of circumstances which people dip their buckets into, trying to find a satisfaction in this well, and they only find themselves empty, and they keep saying things like, well, if only this would happen, if only this, and then my circumstances would change, and I would be better, I would be healthier, I would be wealthier, I would be in a better place. It's well of circumstance. Another well is the well of family that I think this woman was drinking out of. The water that is in this well is one that is focused on finding satisfaction in loved ones. Obviously, she was not finding the satisfaction in her choice of husbands, as Jesus points out quite clearly to her. She was moving from one to another, trying to find what she was looking for, and she just could not seem to find the satisfaction that she wanted or needed. And this well will only momentarily give meaning. It will only momentarily give satisfaction. It is not a constant source of joy. And this is evidence from the story of this woman. A third well that she was drinking out of was the well of self. 
the well of self. This is the worst kind of well. The water that is in this well is so putrid and so toxic that the moment at which you, you drink it, it begins to destroy you. It is this kind of thinking of, well, I don't need other people. This woman, she was at the well alone. She didn't come with the rest of the community, the rest of, of the women that would come to the wells. No, she was there at a different time of day. She was alone. It's this kind of thinking of, I, I know what's best for me. Or saying things like, well, I, I just don't feel, and then you fill in the blank. This is a self kind of well. One that we, we dip into and we drink out of and we think, no, I, I, can, I can solve it. I can fix it. it it's me. And I, I don't feel this way toward you anymore. Or I'm, I'm the one that's really in control. This well or wells that this woman was drinking out of. They left her completely unsatisfied because they were broken wells and they had no real water in them. They were only leaving her empty. We find ourselves drinking from a variety of broken wells, don't we? Only to be left dehydrated and sick. And these wells, or you could even say gods, they are all empty of what we really need. There's no other God that can satisfy our soul's desire other than the God of the Bible. Look back at verse 13 and 14 of what Jesus says. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the God that gives a water that is not only satisfying, but it's a water that is reproducing. This, this living spring of life. Jesus is the only one that can give that. You will not find anything else in the universe that's going to deliver those kinds of results. Now, they might make those kinds of promises, but they can never deliver on those kinds of promises. This is one reason why we should be passionate about worshiping the right God. Because we have a God that makes promises and then can fulfill those promises. Unlike these false gods that can never, never produce what they promise. All these things, the circumstances, the family, the self, they, they can never produce the promise that we hear them speak to. You will only find yourself having more of an intense thirst than what you did before if you keep going back to these wells and drinking out of these wells. We must be passionately worshiping the right God and drinking from the right well that we would have a spring of life welling up in us. Well, we also learn from the scriptures that God is passionate about his worship. It's not that just that we should be passionate about worshiping God, but God himself is passionate about his worship. And let me take you to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, you find the Ten Commandments. And so right here in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 6, we hear God's passion for his worship. Listen to what verse 2 says of Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What are the first two commandments about? These first two commandments are about the worthiness of God, the value of God, of how we should ascribe to him the ultimate value above all things, that there should be nothing that compares to him. And this is what he says in the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. There should be nothing that compares to me, God says. And then the second commandment follows that up with, you shouldn't make for yourself anything that, that's trying to represent me, that's superior over you. And Paul even gets at this uh, later on in Romans, uh, just the kind of the ridiculousness of this happening and how people do this. And what's interesting in this section of Scripture, if you look at verse 5, it says, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. A jealous God. Now, most of the time, whenever we hear the word jealous or jealousy, we always kind of think of it in a negative sense. And I think that's rightfully so for us as humans in our sinfulness and how we always think. And, and most of the time, whenever we are jealous, it's because we are selfish in some way. But there's a, a good kind of jealousy, a right kind of jealousy, and God is doing that. He has that kind of jealousy for his worship. And let me explain what this means. God is jealous for your worship. Why is he jealous for your worship? Because God is perfect in who he is. Because God is perfect, he must, he must demand worship only to himself. Because what else is there in this universe that compares to him? There's nothing and so it would not be good or loving or right from a perfect God to allow you or, or not uh, condemn worship of another God. He, he must require worship of himself and himself alone. He is jealous for your worship. He is passionate about his worship, and we should be as well. I want to take you also to Leviticus chapter 1. And this is another place in which we see God showing that he is jealous for his worship and that we should love God and worship God above all things. Look at Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to read this whole chapter. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock and of the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting and uh, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall uh, flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces 
And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire and on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, and the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. And it is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar, and he shall remove its crop with its uh, contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes, he shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever its, it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, why do we read all of that? Because the point of Leviticus 1. Here we learn about the process of this burnt offering. We hear the detail that is in this first chapter about how and what do you bring as a burnt offering. And so why is there so much explanation about this process? Because God cares how he is worshipped. He cares about his worship and the worship to him. He should not be treated like any other god. He should not be treated as if he's some sort of common household item. We should have a reverence for him and an awe of him and not treating him just as a common friend that we have. He is the God Almighty. He should be treated with reverence. And Leviticus 1 is making this point. This is why the details are here. You have heard the saying that the devil is in the details. Well, even though that's a catchy saying, I think the, the, the real truth is that God is in the details. God gives, as you read through the Old Testament, you see again and again the constant detail that God gives to his people as they're making their way out of Egypt to the promised land. And he gives them detail after detail of how to worship him, of how to honor him, of how to be his people. And all the offering that was given here in Leviticus 1, it is burnt up. All the offering, it was given to God. None of it was held back for the priest. None of it was held back for the person that brought it. The instruction that was given for the burnt offering is that all of it would be burnt up. Now notice also, this is Leviticus 1. This is the very first offering that is mentioned in Leviticus. The rest of Leviticus is talking about all these other offerings that will be, that will be brought to God. But why is this one the first? Because of the point that it makes. This first offering, the burnt offering, all of it goes to God. Why is this? Because he is worthy. He is worthy of all 
of our worship. He is worthy of all that we could give. He is worthy of every bit of what you have ever had or ever will have. He is worth it all. And so this is symptomatic of this fact. This is a symbol here, right at the very beginning of Leviticus, a symbol to the people, to those that are participating in this moment. They are to perceive that God is worthy of all that we have to offer. It is his worthiness that we praise. It is his, his value that we honor. If God is worthy of all of our worship and praise, then what must we be doing in our worship? What must our worship be? Well, I think um, John Frame and his systematic theology is very helpful here in kind of simplifying down what must be in worship. What must be our worship? Frame says it's really three things. Worship must be, one, biblical, two, Christ-centered, and three, edifying. Biblical, Christ-centered, and edifying. Let's walk through each of these. Let me give you kind of a reference point as we talk about each of these. And the first about being biblical is in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. It says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Worship, it must be biblical. Our worship is invalid if it is not biblical worship. Our worship, it must be in line with God's precepts, not with our own. Biblical does not mean traditional. So just because we say, well, oh, this is how we do things, and this is this group over here that they do this a different way, it doesn't mean that what they're doing or what we're doing is biblical. It could just mean that this is the tradition in which we hold. So just because we've always done it that way doesn't necessarily mean that it's a biblical way to do it. There are things that we don't do in our gathering that they used to do a thousand years ago. So the age of a practice, it doesn't make it right and doesn't make it wrong. What makes worship worship is what God has instructed us by the way of his word. How do we know what worship is? It's by what God has told us. It's by what God has spoken. An example of unbiblical worship is the Pharisees. And this is, again, who's being addressed here in Matthew 15. The Pharisees, they're a prime example of unbiblical worship. They would make up new laws for the people to follow, knowing that they themselves would not be able to follow these rules. Or they found loopholes in what they had uh, newly created in order to, to, to uh, manipulate the law. They were adding to what God had commanded. Now, we don't call this practice today Phariseeism. We call it legalism. And legalism, it's dangerous. And I'd say it's more dangerous than any kind of addiction. An addiction, you, you feel as though you can't survive unless you have that thing that you're addicted to. As an addict is dependent upon this substance, it, they feel the shame of it as well. But this is not so with legalism. Legalism is far worse because those who practice it believe themselves to be completely independent, not needing anyone or anything to sustain them. All they need to do is follow the letter of the law, and they're fine. 
And as long as they follow their rules, everything is justified in their mind. Within legalism, there's no place for biblical love because it's, it's about the execution of the law. It's not about the practice of patience and kindness and long-suffering and mercy and grace. It's not about those things. It's about the execution of the law. Those who practice legalism will find themselves always looking down on other people, constantly finding fault with others, and never feeling a bit guilty about it. True worship is biblical. True worship, it must be biblical. It must be based upon what God has shown us in his word. And then this leads us to the second thing that worship must be. It must be Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Let me take you to one passage, and really there's tons of places that we could go to explain this idea of Christ-centeredness in our worship. But let me give you just a, a foundational verse that uh, would be great if you could memorize this. Romans 11 Verse 36, Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What? What does this say? It says that all things are God-centered. And in this God-centeredness, all things are Christ-centered. Everything. Everything that has been in existence. It is because of Jesus. Everything is pointing back to him. This is the same thing that John says earlier in his gospel in chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things are created and centered around Jesus. He is the center of the universe. He is, is the one that everything points to. And as Romans 11.36 says, it's, it's from him, it's through him, and it's back to him. All things are about him. All of scripture revolves around Jesus. All of history revolves around Jesus. Also, all of your life, all of your life revolves around Jesus. Meaning that every pursuit of righteousness in your life, it will be for his glory. But also, also in every single wicked pursuit that you have had in your life, he will be glorified. Either by executing judgment upon you for your wickedness, or by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and through his resurrection that you have been forgiven from him and by him. And you are reconciled to him. It is because of Jesus that there is reconciliation. That there is a redeeming that can happen to the wickedest of sinners. And Paul is a great example of that. And Paul would think of himself in this way. Believing himself to be the, the worst. But he knew that he had a great savior in Jesus and so all of Paul's life was focused and centered on Jesus. All of what he wanted the churches that he started to be focused on was Jesus. And this is what we should think on as we worship. Our worship it must be centered on Christ and not centered on us. Now there is a lot of man-centeredness in American churches today. 
people treat the gathering like they would treat some other kind of business or, or services. They come with the focus on themselves and what they can get out of it. They leave thinking, well, did I enjoy that or not? They ask their kids on the way home, did you have fun? They want songs that are catchy and make them feel good. They, they don't want the sermon to be too long, but just long enough. They want to feel appreciated and catered to when they arrive. I would say that this is the Goldilocks syndrome. You know the story of Goldilocks where she goes into the house of the bears and it's like, well, this porridge is too hot. This porridge is too cold. Well, this one's just right. Well, this chair's too big. This one's too small, but this one's just right. And this is how so many people think of the church gathering. This is how they, they go looking for a church to be a part of. They act just like Goldilocks, trying to find something that's just right for them. And that's so self-centered and self-focused and not Christ-focused. If you approach the Sunday morning gathering with a me-centeredness, you'll be so disappointed that at some point, no matter where you go, you're going to be disappointed at some point wherever you go because, well, they didn't make it about you that one Sunday or they didn't make it about your kids that one Sunday. And whenever this happens, people quickly find a way out. They quickly find some excuse and some justifiable thing in their mind of why they can't stay and why they can't be a part of this anymore and, and they don't feel it anymore. And they're just like Goldilocks. Worshiping the right God means that you can't worship yourself. Worshiping the right God means that it must be Christ-centered worship. And Christ-centered worship is biblical worship. But also what worship must be is that worship must be edifying. Worship must be edifying. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, where Paul talks about this. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn. A lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up or edifying. If you read all of 1 Corinthians 14, you will hear Paul giving instructions to the church about spiritual gifts and then the use of those gifts. And here in verse 26, he makes the point clear that all things done in the gathering should be done for the purpose of building up or edification. It's for one another, not just for yourself. And nothing should be done for show or for boasting purposes. Anything that is practiced or done should be for the building up of the saints in righteousness. For the purpose of reaching a lost generation around us. This is why these things should be done in the church. And so whatever Paul talks about these spiritual gifts, they should be done for Edification purpose, a building up purpose, not just for you to, to make a show of yourself and for people to look at you and think that you're more holy. No, they should be done to edify the body, to build up the body, to train up the body, that the body would be stronger. We should not do something just to say that we have done something. And so often, this is the practice of churches, is that they just copy other churches because, well, they're doing that thing, so we should do that thing. We should not do things just to say that we have done something. All of what we are attempting to accomplish with these changes that we are making, they are not made just for the purpose of saying, well, we are doing things differently now. 
it's not for the purpose of saying, well, we're unique in some sort of shallow way because, you know, we're not like others. But every adjustment is for the purpose of edifying the church. Every change is for the building up of the church. Everything should be beneficial and purposeful. And this is how your elders have been examining the Sunday morning gathering and thinking through Sunday mornings is what we're doing. Is it biblical? Is it Christ-centered? And is it edifying to the body? Is this the best way that we can build up the church? Or are there other things that are lacking that need to be brought in so that we can build up the church? Well, there should be a regular examination in our own personal worship. Thinking about the things that we do, whether they are beneficial, whether they are purposeful, and whether they're not just beneficial for us, because we don't want to be me-centered or self-centered, but we want to focus ourselves on the right God and be Christ-centered. But in any examination process that there is, and we think about what's beneficial, what's purposeful, it needs to be tested against something and tested against the Word of God. We need to test these things against what does God's Word say is beneficial? What does God's Word teach us is purposeful? And so let me give you kind of three questions as we kind of close this morning. Three questions that I think can help us stay on track with what we do or not do in worship. The first question I think we could ask ourselves is this. Is there a command found in the Scriptures? Is there a command that we could look at the Scriptures and go, okay, this is what God has said. He has told us this is very specific and we need to follow this. Are there commands in which we see, and if we see those things, there's no argument about whether we should do it or not. No, we, we do it. We follow it. And then the second question is this, is if there's not a command, is there a principle that we can utilize? Is there principles there um, that are not commands, but there's principles that would answer the question for us of what we should be doing or what we should not be doing? And again, there's, there's tons of principles throughout the scriptures that we could point to. And Paul, Paul even uses this practice when he talks about, um, <clears throat> about not muzzling the ox in reference to paying pastors. He, he references the Old Testament using a principle that's there and points to uh, what's happening in the local church. And so we can do the same thing. We can look Okay, if, if there's a command, then we automatically follow it. There's nothing that we argue about with it. We, we just take it and we go with it. We follow the command that's given. And then the second thing is, well, if we can't find command, then are there principles? And then the third thing I think applies. This question, is this beneficial for our context? Is this thing that we're talking about, is it beneficial for our context? Example of this could be technology. Is technology beneficial for our context? Because it's not always true with technology when we go around the world. It may not be beneficial at all to, to have all kinds of uh, technology brought into the worship service. It might just be completely distracting for some other cultures and for some other places in the world. And so we can ask this question. If the, the Bible has nothing to say about technology, if there's not a command given, there's not a principle given, then... What about our context? Is it beneficial? Is it edifying for the context in which we have? So I think these three questions can help us discern and plan and think through 
are we doing worship in the right way? Are we following this idea of it being biblical, of it being Christ-centered, of it being edifying? Because, again, wrong worship is when we worship the wrong God. We want to stay on track. We want to put up some, some guardrails for ourselves in worship so that we, we don't go off into a ditch one way or the other, worshiping some other God. We, we need some guidelines for us. We need some, some thought-provoking questions for ourselves to stay on track with worshiping the right God. And so how do we know if we're worshiping the wrong God or not? Well, again, using the, these three simple things of, is it biblical? Is this the biblical God of the Bible? Or is this a distortion of that God? And then also, is this, this worship that I'm giving, is it Christ-centered? Is it centered on the good news of Jesus Christ? Is it driven by the truth of his grace and of his mercy? Is it driving us to the cross in humility? Is this what worship is doing? And then uh, of the other aspects and other things that come into worship, is it edifying to the body? Is it building up the body? Now in changes that are made in, in any situation, just says whenever you exercise, you're changing your routine, you're changing what you're doing because you're trying to change your muscles. You're trying to change the, the strength of your body. And whenever we do that, it's painful. There's growing pains. There's soreness. There, there's thoughts that go through your head of, I don't want to do that again. But you know it's good. You know it's right. You know it's healthy. You know it's building your body. And so the things in which, again, we are wanting to to instruct you in and lead you into, they, we, we believe, are biblical. We believe they're Christ-centered. We believe they're edifying. They're going to build up the church. They're going to help the church become stronger. And they're going to help us keep on track with worshiping the right God. Let me leave you with just kind of three questions to ponder on and to think through. Think about this question. Am I worshiping the right God? Am I worshiping the right God? Or am I drinking out of a broken well? Am I acting like this woman in John 4 where I, I've been drinking out of this well, this, worshiping this God of circumstance? I've been worshiping this God of, of self. I've been worshiping this God of family. Am I worshiping the right God? Another question. Why do you come here? And if you've come to Facebook, or you come to our website to watch this video, why do you come here? Why are you listening to this? And if you come here to, to First Baptist, why do you come here? What would you tell your friends? What would you tell your neighbor? What would you tell that person at work of why you come here? And then the last question, what have you been doing when you come here? Have you been worshiping God? Or have you been just checking boxes? Have you been going through a routine, going through a tradition, and not really worshiping God? Have you been assigning God value and worth in your attendance, in, in your giving, in, in the time that you commit to Him? Or are you simply going through the motions and not actually worshiping God? Not really saying that He is superior to you, but 
you just want your friends, your family, maybe to know that you you attend church somewhere that they you want them to see you as a more righteous individual than what you really are. I hope. I hope these questions impact your heart and help you think through what is right worship. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are a God of of detail and of specifics. Lord, you did not leave man in the dark. From the very beginning, you, you have shown your light to us. You have shown your promises to us, and you've shown your faithfulness to us. And so, Lord, forgive us for not worshiping you the way in which you should be worshiped. Lord, forgive us for not assigning you the, the greatest of value. Lord, forgive us for treating you as something as simple as a common household item. Lord, help us to see you with reverence and awe. Lord, let us see everything else in this world as, as worthless compared to you. God, I would ask that you would grant us, grant us repentance in these areas where we have just struggled, struggled in worshiping you. That we have struggled with these wells that are broken and we keep going back to them and drinking out of them and we find ourselves so thirsty, so parched, so dehydrated and sick. God, forgive us. But Lord, let us cling to the promise that Jesus gives that we should drink of that water, that water that he promises to give us. That we would have a well springing up in us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.